Hello, I'm Lazarus Lake, and I am not a crazy runner. I'm just an old hillbilly who lives in the woods. Everybody to another episode of Old Crazy Runners. I'm Nicholas, the oldest of the old crazy runners, and I've got my cousin Fundy, the craziest of the crazy runners. And today we have Lazarus Lake, the creator of the Barkley Marathons and Big Backyard. You're going to want to stay tuned for this one. I loved talking with Lazarus. Uh, but before we get to that, make sure that you take a moment to rate and review the podcast. We want to get the word out there. If you love it, tell everybody you know that you're listening in. And if you have some running friends that complain about when they wake up and the crick in their back hurts a little bit, you're definitely going to want to share the old Crazy Runner podcast with them because they are our demographic. If I'm not waking up with something telling me that I should have just kept sleeping, um, that's, that's the only way I know I'm still going. It doesn't keep me from getting out there, though. And even with putting in some extra miles, I am way behind on our Strava leaderboard. <laughs> yeah, as we all are. We have... Uh, uh, we have 20 people that are doing more than 40 miles a week. And, uh, yeah, I came in in the mid-30s this week, and I'm not even in the top 25. And speaking of old crazy runners, the crew got together last weekend for the Leprechaun Dash. And by that, I mean uh, there were six of our Hood to Coast van mates out there on kind of a dreary, overcast, a little bit of rainy it, it, day. wasn't the greatest. It wasn't the nicest March, but that's kind of par for March. It is. It is. But I was uh, smart enough to bring my insoles this time. And <laughs> still, still two races in, and I've had some issue one way or the other. I missed one of the last turns and ended up running an extra three quarters of a mile. And instead of finishing in the top three of my age group uh, with the extra time, I finished ninth. Except, yeah, but you did, you did beat some other people. Except, official race results, I don't know what happened. They have me listed as a one-year-old, and I am one of two people in the one to 12, and I kicked Aiden's ass. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Aiden went home crying. <laughs> Who's this Nicholas guy beating me? You know, he's thinking, got it. I got it in the bag. I'm the only 12-year-old in the race. Sorry. Yeah. Guy. I'm in. Not, not happening. So Chris and I, we had 13 miles on the calendar for the run plan. And so we went out, did seven miles before the 10K, and then we ran together. And right at the end, so we're, I mean, we're 13 miles in. Right at the end, Chris got a little burst of speed, and I'm like, fuck that. I'm not doing yeah. that. And let him just kind of, you know, he took off, finished, I don't know, 20 yards ahead of me, 25 yards ahead of me. And then... Right at the end, it was cool. They had your bib, they scanned it, and it gave you a little printout. And he said, oh, look at that. I'm top six in my age group, or top seven in my age group. And I looked at mine, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm top six in my age group. <laughs> he beat me, but I beat him somehow. And I think we figured out how that happened. So I think this is what happened. We were right at the start line, and we started to go towards the start line. And I said, oh, wait, I want to drop my, I bought like a $2 rain poncho or whatever. Right. Took it off, gave it to somebody at the desk so they could dispose of it. Well, I think when we started there, I think he crossed the start line. And oh. I didn't. And went back to the table, handed that off. So I think his clock started ticking sooner. Oh, man. He's taking running advice from me. Running across <laughs> the start line and then just stopping. That's silly. Oh, yeah. He, oh, he that's went a backwards. burn. Yeah, he went backwards. That's a burn. Sprint to the finish to beat you, only to not not beat you. That's yeah. awesome. And he keeps arguing, but I'm like, I can't. What am I going to do? F argue with the official clock? No. Well, there's nothing that. to argue about. He started his clock. That's his own damn fault. He should be angry at himself. <laughs> well, his he first didn't have to wait was to run you. with us. He didn't have to wait for you. He could let you. He could, he could cross the start line and keep running. He chose to stop. Yeah. I mean, first oh, mistake was just to run with us. That is his first mistake. We're going to have to start <laughs> charging him beers for every time he, he wants to qualify some of these things he's done. Oh, so good. It was a ton of fun, though. That was a fun race, and they gave you free beer at the end. They did. It was a good race, and then we went out and had second breakfast, and that was awesome, too. So talking about the plan, we were, we were discussing the plan. I 
called uh, Jason Group, and he's getting back up running, and he did the Hal Higdon half marathon plan. Okay. And he's got uh, his first half marathon after getting back uh, up and running after having a pretty serious bout of COVID. Uh, right. Early on. And, uh, you know, we we're just talking about, you know, I joke on Strava, the plan is the plan. But that is one of the beautiful things about running is that if you have a goal and you just do all of the runs on the plan, like they're supposed to be done, you're going to be ready. It's going to happen. So is he deviating from the plan or is he staying on it? No. Oh, he's staying on it. He's all yeah. us old guys. We'll just follow the plan. We're dumb. We don't know what we're doing. Follow the plan. Well, we'll find out here in uh, just a short while because the Eugene is right around the corner and uh, all of your planning is going to show itself in all its glory. Yeah. I don't know if the plan can overcome uh, 52 years old, so we'll see. That's, <laughs> you know, the plan might have been made for you, somebody younger. We'll see. I, I thought you made the 52-year-old plan. Well, I did, but you know who knows. Uh, yeah. We had our 19 mile training run today. Okay, how'd the, that go? The double loop out here, and oh, that's right. Whew, that was a tough one. Yeah, I have to say, I, I you are going to surprise yourself when you actually get out on the race course and you get into that 20, 21st mile, 22nd mile distances you haven't quite got to, and also how you feel as you get up to that threshold. It, there's just something about the race. You're going to feel strong. You're still going to have it. You're going to get to that 22nd mile. You're going to go four miles. I do this all the time. And then you're going to, you're going to, you're going to kick ass versus a training run where it's like mentally you're going into it. Like this is a training run. It's like, I, I, I'm going I'm to be working. Yeah. We were hitting mile 16 and I told Chris, I was like, if we just go straight right here, it goes straight to killer burger. Yeah. Those thoughts are in your head the whole time because it's training. It sucks. It's practice. Training does suck. No one wants practice. The plan you do sucks. It. You got to do it. You, you got to make that it. investment because otherwise you got nothing to withdraw come race day. I've got a topic of discussion. Ah, oh, love these. So here it is. So uh, out here in Beaverton, everybody works for Nike. No matter where you live, you've got three neighbors that work for Nike, so they have the employee store passes. So we go to the employee store, um, which, by the way, you can never go to the employee store and spend less than $400 for some reason. I don't know. Like Costco. You go in for, like, a jug of milk, and you walk out with a fucking kayak. <laughs> exactly. So we go in there. Uh, Joe wanted to get some basketball shoes. And everybody knows our disdain for Nike running shoes. Right. But... We have had a couple guests on recently that were like, you know, I tried these Nikes and they were actually pretty good. So I tried on a pair of the newest version of the carbon fiber, which I can't even remember all the names. It's got like seven names. It's like the Vaporfly right. something something Alpha Next Percent. The longest running shoe name ever in the entire world. It's like the CVS uh, receipt oh. printer named the shoe. <laughs> <laughs> they probably do. They're like, hey, Bob, you got another CVS receipt? We need to name some new shoes. <laughs> got to add to this. Yeah. So, but these, these ones, these are the carbon fiber ones, but the toe area, like the actual uh, foam area that's filled with air and helium, I don't know what it's filled with, but it's actually separate from the back area. Like there's an actual space between the two. Okay. And uh, put those suckers on and ran around a little bit. I'm not going to lie. They felt pretty good. All right. Did you buy them? Uh, no, because I had just bought two pairs of Brooks recently. And my wife was with me. And they were uh, $275 just... before the discount. So why don't we stop with how many you bought the Brooks, the blah, blah, blah. I mean, the real reason you didn't walk <laughs> out with those shoes is your wife was with you. That's well, yeah, but that's I, what you know, it came down to. It. If you were by yourself, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you would have walked out yeah. with those shoes. How did they look? What was their colors yeah, and, like compared to uh, like the Brooks? Uh, I'm trying to remember. They were, I mean, they were a little bit flashier. I think they were like a neon yellow or something close to that. Uh, but with with the employee store discount, they were about $165 or something. So not that's, terrible. That's just. You know, not much more than Brooks. So I think come summer, I think I'm going to get a pair 
and uh, try to do some 10K and half marathon PRs with them and see what happens. Because when I was in there jogging around the store, you can feel that carbon fiber. That, that It bounces you. Like it, it throws some extra speed in there. So we're going to have to asterisk all your stuff after this. You had, you had, the, you had the carbon you fiber the enhancement. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> I won't have they, no asterisk. They you felt pretty good, want. huh? Even, even in your foot, they, uh, they didn't have that, that skinny, I feel like my foot's being constrained feel that Nikes give out. They didn't because they're using this new kind of mesh material, which they've do, done in the past, but it was, it was way too flexible. So this is just flexible enough to let your foot expand a little bit, but still had enough tightness to hold everything in. Gotcha. Kind of like Spanx, I guess. <laughs> and every time I think about putting on a pair of Nikes, I just feel like I'm trying to put on my little kid's flip-flop. <laughs> yes. My foot just doesn't but fit. But yeah, they were pretty good. Nice. So I saw something the other day that I thought was pretty uh, inspirational. And you know, now that we're getting geared up for races... And we're finishing ninth instead of third or sixth, seventh instead of sixth. Uh, it was just a, um, a cool article. So it was about one of the competitors in the uh, Tokyo Olympics recently. And it was, I'm going to say this name terribly, Mike Gorison. Yeah. Did I say that right? Okay. You're guessing know. as well. She's sure. Danish. So I got it right as uh, far as I know. Uh, yeah. She finished 28th. At the marathon. Okay. Out of 88, yeah. by the way. So, I mean, that's top, mm-hmm. you know, third. Uh, she didn't start running till she was in her 30s just to lose weight. And as a 38-year-old, she made the Dutch Olympic team and ran the Olympics. So. Well, the, she finished top third. She finished top third. But the whole point of the article, and we'll link to it because it's it just really builds well to it is the realization of seeing somebody. And she, she crossed the finish line. She was just aghast that she couldn't believe it. She was 28. She was like, she was, yeah. it felt like she was first place. She's excited yeah. and all happy and just embracing what it means to cross the finish line. Not, not having to go in there with so many uh, expectations and not being uh, so willing to beat up on ourselves because we didn't meet some of these arbitrary goals, but just going out there and realizing that uh, you did something that half a percent of all humans have ever done. If you've run a marathon. And uh, in this case, you were uh, 28th best in the world. Uh, that's a pretty damn good achievement, no matter what you want to say. And uh, I thought it was a pretty cool article. It made me feel better about going out there and uh, just doing my best each time that I run. And then that's all that I'm putting into it. Yeah, it's so true. I was actually just listening to a podcast by an ex-NFL person, and he was talking about how you know, mentally strained is on some of these elite athletes for no reason. You know, they'll they'll lose in the semifinals of the playoffs and then be depressed for a year. When they were they finished third, they were the third best team. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, losing's hard for everybody, and I and at that level, it's only going to get magnified. But it really is important, um, I think, for your well being, especially for those of us that are trying to just be competitive within ourselves to keep it in perspective. And to make sure to highlight, um, you know, all the things that are going well, like, you know, kicking a 12-year-old's ass no matter what. (laughs) (laughs) Making your friend finish seventh even though he beat you. He didn't beat you. He stopped. It was poor planning. (laughs) Yeah, he's got to work his race plan better than that. I'm going to let him know that uh, on his next race plan, he shouldn't start off with cross the starting line and then stop and wait. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good plan. And then run. We'll be sure to, I'll, I'll write that down for the official marathon day. You plan. should do that on, on your next training run. You should just kind of go, you know, I've been really embracing this train like you're going to race. So today yeah. I'm going to train like, like you race. I'm going to start and then I'm going to start and then I'm just going to stop randomly for somebody else and then blame oh, them. Oh, so good. <laughs> Many people know that Lazarus Lake created, uh, the Big's Backyard and the Barkley Marathons, but a lot of people don't know he's run across the country. He has run across the country, and he continues to do everything possible to make his races as hard and as challenging as the races he's put himself through. And I mean, this is how hard they are. So Barkley Marathons brings the elite of the elite ultra runners from around the world, and yet again this year, nobody finished. 
if I'm not mistaken, they've had more times where the race was ran and nobody finished than they have with people who have finished. Yeah, I think, uh, correct, I think only like a half a dozen people have finished. I think less than 10 people have ever finished the race. And it's not just the Barkley, it's the creativity that he brings to several of his races. We talked about Big's Backyard. He's had one that ran across Tennessee, basically, 314 miles. And each one of these brings an aspect of challenge that is going to push these elite people in different ways. And I love the way that he finds that niche for each run. And I love the way that he just messes with people's minds. You're going to love this conversation. So, Lazarus, welcome to the podcast. Well, I appreciate you having me on here. And, uh, you know, you say that uh, you are usually the only normal person around, uh, but I've seen some of the stuff that you've done, and you seem just a wee bit crazy. <laughs> I'm a white bread kind of guy. <laughs> we, we, just, uh, we just do normal stuff, but a lot of crazy people get involved. They do. And uh, I've noticed that y you seem to be an expert of, about uh, gathering crazy people around you. <laughs> How do you do that? Probably the same, the same strategy as those plants that, that have the flower about once every 10 years. It smells like <laughs> rotting meat. <laughs> we just sound like there's insanity going on. Well, I definitely want to make sure to uh, emphasize that although a lot of what you talk about it, uh, for what you do is just normal from your perspective, uh, they certainly represent really pushing the envelope um, for a lot of others. And in particular, um, some of the challenges that you've put out there, we'll definitely talk about the two main ones that, uh, that I'm most aware of. But you've put on a number of races and uh, events. And the thing that stood out to me is what your comment where you talk about it really isn't about breaking somebody down, but about giving them the empowerment to believe that they can actually go and do it. So I'd love to hear a little bit more from you as far as what that means to you as a person and then also as a runner. I think that there's, uh, there's greatness in every person in your objective putting on events is to give them an opportunity to to find that greatness in themselves it's not really something that you do as, as the race director you provide the venue and then stay out of their way and you know to kind of echo on what nicholas asked um you know you you talk about um trying to find that line between impossible to finish and <laughs> Uh, where only a few people can finish, and and uh, why do you think that's important? And there are so few. Maybe only your races are the ones that are that hit that sweet spot. The Barkley is the one where the the course design is such a critical factor, and it really is easy to make a course that no one can finish, or easy to make a course that lots of people can finish. The trick is to make a course that just very few people can take. And how do you do that? Practice. <laughs> <laughs> the, the objective is always to leave the, the runner a little off balance, a little uncertain, not certain where they are, not certain whether, you know, the time limit's right there snapping at their heels. If they can, if they can do the math, when you, when you start out, of course, you build up a margin. But if you're knowledgeable about your running, the ones that really have a chance to finish, they're already aware that at night they're going to lose time on the second time around, the third time around. And so the, the time limit is just always there. They never, whenever anything goes wrong, if they're not certain where they are and have to stop and look at their map, that's minutes they don't have. It's actually worked out with where the, with only a couple of exceptions, every runner that finished has had to run the fifth loop faster than the fourth to do it. That is uh, absolutely amazing. So before we go too much further, for those that are not familiar with the Barkley Marathon, uh, for one, there is an amazing documentary. There's a couple of them actually on the marathon itself. I highly recommend you take the time to look at that and, and familiarize <laughs> with what you're saying about this race. 
because the idea that somebody is going to run the fifth loop faster than the fourth loop just blows my mind. This race, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it is, if you finish all five loops, you have effectively ascended Mount Everest, ascended and descended Mount Everest uh, two times at least. Is that correct? Yeah, yes. It's, it's more than twice from sea level. <laughs> from sea level. From sea level. So, I mean, that's... But we do have Supier in Tennessee. Oh well, that that's that's for the best, you know. And and they're they're crawling through streams and they're hiking through abandoned prison tunnels and briar patches and briar patches. And um, one really amazing hill that they have to go up. So this is you have put together something that is just incredibly challenging for one loop, and yet asking somebody to do five loops within a time frame that pushes them to have to actually be their best self on that last loop. Uh, that's the sort of thing that is, you know, I think in a word, crazy. A little crazy. That's crazy. Uh, but the people who do it are primarily really successful, stable people. They, uh, most, of, most of the, there's been 15 finishers. In 15. However, 30, however many years it's been. And almost all of them have a doctorate. That's pretty amazing and not surprising at all. But I mean, that certainly feeds into that personality that would, that would push something like that, uh, that far. So you allow uh, 40 participants per year. Is that, is that the cutoff? Yes, that's as, that's as much as the venue can, can, can hold without making an impact. It's a uh, wilderness area. So we have to keep the usage down to, the number of people where that a year from now you can't tell and then you obviously as this has gotten to be more and more uh popular and present you're getting more applications it's somewhere north of a thousand for every every year is that also is that about where you're at yeah it's way north of a thousand so it's uh but the number the number of serious applicants hasn't really changed over the years the people that People that have the, the background and experience to make a to make a serious attempt have known about it long before it was published. And that was where I was going with this because I really would like to know what are you looking for in a new first time runner in those thousand applications? Obviously, there's going to be some criteria that whittles it down pretty easily. When you look at that, when you get to that final list and you've got to pick somebody or a handful of people that are going to run it for the first time, what stands out to you in uh, picking the people that you believe are actually going to legitimately compete? Uh, it's, it's not really even so much that they have the chance to finish. It's their motivation for being there. I can't, don't want to say too much because people write essays about why that they should run. And, and those essays actually weigh heavily on who gets in and who doesn't. We, uh, the, the logistics of the thing is the campground where that we set up, we can handle 40 runs. The course itself can't actually handle that amount of traffic. If we had 40 people that were capable of making a serious attempt in getting to the end, then it would be too much traffic. So we anticipate having a lot of that one lap is the greatest achievement of their life or two laps or the, the three lap fun run. So we're really looking at the field we designed that we, we can put 40 bodies out there, but we want them to average X number of laps a piece. And that, that works out good because it's nice that everybody gets a chance. And it's, and sometimes people surprise you. We have people that finish that, you didn't really think coming in they could do it. And you have people that you thought had a really good chance that just never can get close. There's a mental aspect of it that, that is difficult beyond, regardless of the physical. The uncertainty makes it a different kind of game. And that's what it kind of seems like. Uh, it's not necessarily the best ultra runner or the fastest ultra runner, but people that have some sort of internal drive, maybe a demon within them that, that keeps them from, from quitting? I would say pretty much everybody we have is really determined. 
that's one of the things people like to, you know, I'm really determined. You don't know how determined I am. And I always tell them, we had not thought about getting really determined. (laughs) (laughs) Never thought of that. No, they're all, they're all determined. It's, you have to have a set of skills in the woods because you're on your own and you have to be able to take care of yourself, find your way. You have to be able to deal with, you have to be knowledgeable enough to realize you're under pressure even, even before the time limit starts to close in on and uh, to deal with that pressure and to deal with the uncertainty. And for people that don't know, not only are you running uh, out in the woods in a giant 20 plus mile loop, uh, on the loop, you have to find hidden books that you've placed uh, with somewhat uh, mean book titles, shall we say, and rip the page out of the book that matches their bib number. How hard is it to find those books? Uh, The books are, they're not hidden as kind of a misnomer, but they do have to be placed out of sight. They're just sitting there in the open and someone would take them. And now that the wild hogs have gotten to be such a problem, hogs love books and paper bags or plastic bags. We're not really sure why, but if they're put where the hogs can get to them, they tear the books and the bags to shreds. Now, have you had to account for that on any one of your actual loops? Yeah. Uh, we've had books get shredded during the race where people didn't put them back where they found them. But now they know that's, that's it's their own future that's at stake. Yeah. So did you have people just show up and say, I, I, my page didn't exist. Here's a piece of a different page. No, they, they came with the shredded, the shredded remnants of a page. <laughs> <laughs> and then occasionally there's been a case where someone had to come with a different page than their, than their own. But that's not, uh, that's not too common. Everybody's pretty conscientious about it. They want to get it right because they don't want to go through all that and have it not count. I know you said that there was a big hill, but there's really not any single big hill. It's uh, Runners have said it was like that every really tough course has a signature hill, and the Barkley is like taking those signature hills from all the worst races and putting them just one right behind the other. <laughs> well, that was nice of you. Yeah. We don't get to 66,000 total feet unless you've uh, put in a few climbs. It's, uh, I want to say, 64, 65,000. We alter the course slightly every year so that nobody can ever go and be familiar with everything. And when you're creating the course, do you hike uh, the whole course yourself while you're creating it? <laughs> uh, not while I'm creating it. I've, I've hiked all over those mountains over the, over the many years. I've been hiking out there since 73. And then when we put out the books, we take lots of different routes to go from place to place just to get a good look at. And we've, We've kind of reached a uh, we've reached a break point on that. Me and Mr. Rod Dog used to go out there and, and we would put out all the books on a weekend. We'd go out one day and do the high books and the next day and do the low book. And then we started having to add another weekend. And then then we had to start adding more and more days to get it instead of being able to put out a whole bunch of books in a day we got to where it was all we could do to finish a book in a day so some of the hard books i just can't get in and out in one day anymore i i don't know what's happened but the hills must have gotten bigger <laughs> well we know that that's a fact i'm i'm sure the hills have gotten bigger so uh my when i'm running my miles have gotten longer and the hills are bigger and i don't know why it's science my theory is technology betrays you because uh, the first betrayal I noticed was my watch. And I know that my, my watch betrayed. Yeah, I'm sure it did. <laughs> so kind of going back in time, uh, all of these uh, races that you've created really seem to harken back to when you were younger, you and your friends just kind of wanted to come up with crazy stuff to do. Fun things. We just like to have a good time. Yeah. Good time, guys. <laughs> so what were some of the uh, first ones? I know you uh, uh, crossed Tennessee or north to south or east to west uh, just for fun things to do. I got into journey running 
really long ago. And we've got the Vol State now, which has kind of grown out of journey runs that people want to go to go with me. That's a 500 kilometer that goes from the very southeastern tip of Missouri to the very northwestern tip of Georgia. Uh, that sounds like a long run. It's just 500 kilometers, give or take. It's <laughs> 314. We, we made it uh, 100 pi in length. Because that way, when people get to the rock and they come to the finish line, there's not really a distinct line because being 100 pi long, we can't tell you exactly where the finish <laughs> is. We can tell you when you haven't reached it, and we can tell you when you're past it. But not quite when you're there. I mean, it just seemed fitting that someone should run a race that was an irrational distance. <laughs> It certainly does fit in with uh, your motif on, on a lot of these runs. And you, you personally have also, you're one of the few people that can say you've traversed the entire United States. You, you went from the East Coast to the West Coast. Uh, how long ago was that? That was in 2018. I went from Newport, Rhode Island to Newport, Oregon. We happen to be very familiar with Newport, Oregon. Did you yeah. stop at the Rogue Brewery by chance and get yourself uh, one of their fantastic beers? <laughs> Let me see what was the biggest the biggest thing I saw going through there. I remember the excitement when I came over the last hill and I saw the ocean out in front of me because that was the very first time that I thought, now I know I'm gonna make it. Yeah, going over those cascades is uh kind of a kick in the ass. There are more mountains in the US that, <laughs> that are unadvertised and unmentioned. I ended up crossing 13 mountain ranges. Did you even know there were 13 mountain ranges in the U.S.? I did not. Uh, that doesn't <laughs> surprise me at all. I mean, we have two major just here. Because you crossed the Cascades, but actually when you were in... Well, the Cascades, it was the coastal the range. The coastal range, yeah. I saw the ocean. And uh, you may not have had a chance to, to check it out, but there is a spot along the coastal range there on Highway 20 called Mary's Peak. And uh, it is an amazing uh, natural structure that uh, has aspects to it that can only be found at sea level anywhere else in the world. But because of the way the geology pushed the mountain up, it's up at like 1,500, 2,000 feet. It's really cool. I wish I'd known about that and seen it when I went through. My last, my last little stretch, I wasn't aware of much except the drive <laughs> to get to the damn ocean. So how long did it take you to uh, complete your journey? It took four months, and I had I ran a little overtime. I got I had some real big problems in Iowa and in Illinois, and Illinois was so bad I had to hike up to uh, Wisconsin to get on decent roads. And so when you add a side trip like that on a, on foot, you can't. There's no way to absorb it. You just get behind. So the from Nebraska on, it was a desperate, desperate push. And then I really started kicking in Idaho, trying to, I had an absolute cutoff that I had to be done by. I made it by two hours. Oh my. Uh, was that absolute <laughs> cutoff, was that just internally or did you have some event that you had to get back to? Event I had to get back to in the last flight out, the, the red eye overnight flight I had to catch in Seattle. I knew how much time I had, and I just barely made it. <laughs> and what was that I, event? I remember the, the, the sheer anger at the end, because I had looked at the ocean there in Newport, where you, you go down to the beach. I guess if you've been there, you kind of know the area. Oh, yeah. And you, you go right straight off the end of 20, and, and you get in this park and go a little bit to the left, so you go to the beach. And on the Google Street View, it looks like, go to the edge of this grass and, and there's the ocean. But when I get there, there's like a 200 foot hill <laughs> that you have to go down to reach the ocean. And on top of that, I arrived at low tide. So the water is way the hell <laughs> And it just, you know, I, I had gone all this time thinking I would get to the edge of that grass, stick my foot in the water and sit down in a line chair and smoke a cigarette and instead i had to climb down this hill which i was going to have to come back up and then chase out across all that flat sand to get to where the water was it 
seemed tremendously unfair. <laughs> yeah, that's unfair. You got to be careful on the Oregon coast because uh, depending on what road you go down, you could be on the beach or you could be on a cliff that's nowhere near that water. Yeah, I was aware of those things, so that was why I had planned. You know, I knew exactly where I was going when I got to the end of the road. Yeah, and there's a reason we call it the coast and not the beach here in Oregon. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what were some of your favorite things uh, on that four month journey across the U.S.? The night sky in the desert is one of the best things anywhere. People who have not been out in the desert at night with no moon have no clue how many stars there really are. I didn't, I didn't end up catching any of that in eastern Oregon, but in Nebraska and Wyoming, I did. And I think uh, one of the reasons it's so phenomenal, and correct me if I'm wrong, is when you're out there in the desert and there's no clouds, and even if there's no moon, it's so bright out with the stars. There's, there's no moon. If you got no moon, there's no clouds. There's no humidity even in the air so that you have just such a clearer view. And of course, there's no light pollution because there's nothing around. You're familiar, you're familiar with that stretch of road from Burns to Bend? Oh, yeah. yeah. We've both driven it probably too many times when we were younger. Man, torture. <laughs> so boring. <laughs> such torture. It's 140 miles and there's four curves. And, and it's being uh, super generous to describe them as curves as well. <laughs> They're more like sweeping. But I would anticipate it all day for fear that when I went around it, you know, after 30 miles in a perfectly straight line, I was afraid I would pull something. I could fly off the road. <laughs> I wasn't sure what my head. So what was uh, the, the biggest challenge for you on that race? We've talked to a couple different people that have done this, and it's interesting just to hear uh, what aspects they ran into that they weren't quite, they didn't know how to expect it. And, and you know, when they got into it, <laughs> this is how they had to adjust. Um, there, were, there were lots of things. I think physically, because I wanted to do it the fastest I could go, which unfortunately I did not do it when I was a little younger and I could have gone a lot faster was, was to keep physically going when reach the point that your body keeps the only thing, the only message you're getting back from your body is that it's finished. <laughs> I'm done. I can't take another step, but you just did. And then another, and another. And uh, how many miles a day were you doing on average? I only ended up doing 27 miles a day. Only, only twenty-seven. Yeah, it's it's. No, it was taking me fourteen hours a day to do it. I just, I've got some issues with my legs. They don't go as fast as they used to. And after I hit the first couple of mountain ranges, they never really were the same the rest of the trip. You, y'all were talking earlier about wanting to run till you're ninety, and I have the advice that will get you there. Stop now. <laughs> Take it back up when you're eight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's uh, a conversation or information we've heard from other people that uh, have run quite well into their late years is they typically had a pretty significant break somewhere, at least <laughs> early 20s, mid 20s, where they didn't run until maybe their 40s or 50s. And then they picked it back up. And uh, those are the people that we hear are the ones that are running more like 70 and 80. Uh, few outliers here and there, but uh, for the most part, some of, most of them have had some sort of a uh, rest period. Yeah. It, uh, see, I've been going for 55 years now and I, I, I'm aware I probably would be in better shape if I had not trained as hard or raced as hard when I was younger, but I wouldn't undo anything I did, but it does, it does take a toll. There is kill everywhere, except when you compare yourself to other people your age and realize, yeah, most of them couldn't walk 27 miles. True. Yeah, a lot of them have a hard time with 27 steps. Uh, I'm curious, after finishing that just grueling four-month journey, how did that change your outlook on the races that you put together? Did it, did it bring any, a new sort of perspective to the runs that you uh, facilitate? I hadn't thought about that. It, 
it certainly had lots of effects on me, but a lot of those had nothing to do with running. It was just everything that you saw and could could fathom and figure out from the trip. It it gives you a sense that the the other races are so much easier than you thought they were. And when you were traveling, I assume uh, you met up met some nice people on the way that maybe helped you out or or uh, any any stories from there. Uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of human encounters, and they were they were all good, really. They, I mean, unless you count the people who are madmen passing. The biggest advice I give to people is think about it when you're in a car and you're passing. I saw so many people risk their lives, the lives of their family, the, the lives of any stranger that could be coming from the other direction to save seconds. I went one day and I walked like 30 miles in a row straight, flat. You could see, you could pass any time that there wasn't someone there. And then I came to a little rise and they had a no passing zone that was probably a quarter of a mile long. And I could see it coming for a long time. And I thought after watching these people, I'll bet there's a roadside memorial on that, on that one passing zone. Because on the other side of it, so the next 25 miles, it's open pass. So on a, in a 50-mile stretch of road, they've got a quarter mile that it's not safe to pass. Two roadside memorials. <laughs> it's, it's insane. How long would it take you to wait a quarter mile to pass? Yeah, not very long when you're driving at 65, 70 miles an hour. Yeah. If you drove 65 or 70 on that, you would be killed. <laughs> From behind, that's true. It's been a while since I've driven that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think people just get down into double digits as they approach burns or bend. Yeah, there's a lot of triple-digit driving out there, I think. You, you know, that that's an interesting dichotomy in that moment because, you know, for you, it's so poignant to talk about what's the rush. Why Why do you have to pass right now? And yet, you build and design races that inherently put that aspect directly in front of the competitors themselves. And so I just, it strikes me how you, you see that. And yet you also in your own way, create that because you know, the pressure that that puts on people. Yeah, but they're not going to die. They may wish for death. <laughs> but, well, probably not going to die. No, but there's no guarantee. Not die. <laughs> so I'd love to bring it back to some of your other races. Uh, one of my favorites that Nicholas, Nicholas and I got a kick out of this year was following along was uh, Big's Backyard. Can you kind of explain how that works to to our audience? Uh, it's a it's a great format that has turned out to have a lot more a lot more aspects to it than I had anticipated going in, but it's basically built on competition. You run a 4.16667 mile loop every hour. And the start is every hour. You have to be in the starting corral. You have to start. You have to run it. If you get back with time left, you can spend it however you want, but you have to be in the starting corral for the next hour start. And it goes all day and all night and all day and all night until only one person can do it. Or, well, I thought when I started, it would get down to where only one person could do it. But people that actually don't quit when they can go no further, they quit when they no longer believe they can win. It's easy enough for a, for a young, healthy runner to do four miles an hour. That's not real demanding. But over time, no matter how good you are, it begins to become somewhat painful. And so you have to weigh it off. Everybody's looking at the other runners that are left and they're thinking, what do they have left? How determined are they? How yeah. far can they go? Because I don't want to keep suffering. So when you no longer believe you can win, you drop. And it turns out that even when you put together all great runners who are used to winning, everybody has that quit point. You may regret it in five minutes, but it's too late because you have to step at the line that moment and go. Well, and it, it also, it's an interesting uh, switch in sorts in that 
um, for every other race, there's a known end. And it, no matter where you are in the race, you can begin to do that internal and that mental calculation of what do you need to do to get to that end. Uh, but here there, there is no end. And so that calculation just rolls over and rolls over and rolls over. And I just am blown away at the simplicity and yet how uh, it just it exposes someone's really true core. You never know. Whether the race, the race could end in the next hour or it could last another day and you don't have any way to know except to look at those other people and try to figure out what if they got left. And that would really be, I've, I, I, most of me really regrets that we didn't do this when I was young enough that I could do four more hours. <laughs> but part of me says all of my racing i was so tied to that end point you know count down uh when you're halfway there halfway there you're you're home because now it's downhill or getting to where you're figuring out okay when i do a mile it's 10 percent of what's left and the next mile will be 15 percent of what's left so what when uh, people are running uh, Big's Backyard, I would imagine there's various strategies between, uh, you know, run fast, finish your mile so you have more time to rest or drag it out and maybe just give you a few minutes to refuel and get back out there. Is, is there a strategy that seems to work better or uh, <laughs> is it just survival mode? I think the ones that mix it up, but a lot of people tend to be metronomic about it. That you know, the guy that's doing 48 minute laps does 48 minutes laps hour after hour, day after day. Everyone's fastest lap, of course, is the lap of the pit stop. Because if if you have to hit the porta potties, you have to be done before the next hour starts. Uh, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about the porta potty, you definitely got to work that porta potty in. And so they want to, when you see someone fly in with a really fast lap, you know they're going to go right past the finish line and straight onto the port of <laughs> You can see that in their eyes. <laughs> well, you've just seen it too many times. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of trying to mess with each other's heads. It's, uh, it's half poker and half running. That was one thing that I was going to ask about is, um, you know, how much shit talking has happened out there? How much are these people <laughs> trying to negotiate an end with somebody um, versus a run like, uh, you know, the Barkley where y you can say whatever you want, but you both have that set point. And once you get there, whoever gets their first first wins. Yeah. Now, in the uh, in the backyard, I don't think you can talk someone into stopping. You see people go on to help the guy they were with, even when they've already given up. If the if the person is because when the when the last person does a lap and he's the only one, it's over. So you can only be as good as you the next guy makes you. So people will hang on. When we had the satellite championships. People were hanging on in those countries. They'd already given up, but they were trying to help their country get ahead by staying out there so that the person they'd already given up and thought they were, knew they were going to lose to could get further. And that's what I've heard mentioned is that the people who drop out become the pit crew for the people who are left. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's true. A lot of those races, the Barkley runners if someone's left on loop five they have the greatest pit crew on earth because they've got all these people with all this experience so this year uh courtney dewalter won the big's backyard um what were some of the things that you saw her do that uh you thought kind of helped helped her be the winner uh she kept walking to the starting line until she was the only one <laughs> I would imagine there's a little bit more to it, but that those definitely are the fundamentals. Year in and year out, that's been the winning strategy. And uh, people have done a variety of things. They've run fast laps. They've run slow laps. Uh, you, you have to learn to be really good with your aid time. 
people think of it, they think, oh, if I'm doing that and, I'm, and I've got 10 minutes at the end of every hour, that, that you have all this excess time. But it turns out you never have until every hour you have to be on. So anything that you do in terms of maintenance, you have to do it in that five to 10 minutes that you're going to have. And it, it can get pretty tricky. You had uh, uh, Maggie Google this year had pulled something in her leg and she wanted to get taped. And it took them three tries before they got it finally figured, got it down to where we had to have, they had to have everything ready. And the moment she came across the finish line, they pull her down and, and are rubbing her off with the alcohol swabs and getting everything applied. And they still barely got her back at the line. And the time before that, they got close, but when she got back up to the starting line to go again, the tape was falling off. It, you don't think about it, but when you're in an ultra, if you run into something where the, you, you need 20 or 30 minutes or even an hour to work on it, you've got it. What if all your aid stops had to be less than five minutes? Yeah, I mean, that doesn't, I mean, that just doesn't allow for even the, the most basic of transitions. <laughs> I mean, you want to change your, your socks. That's, that's five minutes when you've been going at it for 34, yeah. 40 hours. And what was, uh, what was the total time this year? For the winner, uh, in the U.S., Courtney went 68, 68, 68 hours. hours, and then in Belgium, uh, Carl Sabi got seventy-five hours. Holy smokes, seventy-five! So, so uh, plus what is that? Three days? Three days, three hours. Yeah, that that's, that's holy pretty amazing. smokes. <laughs> three days and another twelve miles, so three hundred and twelve miles. The four point one six 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 seven. Um, works out to be exactly 100 miles every 24 hours. Oh, okay. So if you make it 24 hours in a in a backyard ultra, you've done a 20, you've done a hundred miler, and you've also done it in under 24 hours. And on top of that, you've run it with exactly identical hourly splits every hour, <laughs> all 24 of those hours. That's just crazy. You know, and what, what's interesting is, you know, we've talked to people that have done 100 milers and then, you know, the 24-hour cutoff. And it just the, it's, it's a very different mental conversation when they're looking at that entirety. You know, they got 20-mile chunks. That's the checkpoints they have to get before the end of the race. Yeah. But it's a lot different to think about how do you manage your time when you have 20 miles and eight hours versus four miles and one. Uh, and yet at the end of the day, it's the same metrics. I, I, I just, you know, hats off to taking something that was already similar and familiar and turning it on its head. It's, uh, it's like a whole different running sport. It's really because it's, it's attracted in different, different places. Uh, people have found it's really just a fun participation event. You can go further than you ever went. It's, you don't have to beat yourself up. It's non-threatening. You stop when you want. Um, and there's a, there's a, you're together with all the other runners every hour instead of, yeah, it's like a party that starts with about 15 till the hour. And as the people filter in and sit down and they're all talking and having a good time and then the, the whistle sounds and up they get and the bell rings and they go again. As opposed to an ultra where that you might, uh, especially with the field size back when I ran, you could you could run half a day and not see anybody. You weren't even sure if there was anybody else left. And from a safety standpoint, if you pass out and can't get back up, uh, people only have to carry you two miles back to uh, a car or an ambulance. Don't you mean they only have to go two miles to tell somebody you're in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the uh, difference. That's a, uh, There's a no great... way they're going to carry you and make the cutoff. That would be insane. <laughs> so I, I would like to come back to uh, Courtney Dewalter because uh, you had also commented on some skepticism as to whether uh, a female athlete would be able to complete all five loops of a Barkley. Uh, and yeah. we're definitely seeing more parity 
in the times and the results between male and female runners. And after Courtney's effort in the in Big's backyard, I'm curious if that might have uh, altered your perspective a little bit on the ability for a woman to finally complete all five loops. No, they're, they're two completely different. But one of the really great things about the backyard ultra, because it removes speed and strength from the equation, the women compete head up with the men. There was, uh, uh, so if I can get, there was 21 countries that had in the had national championship races in the, the satellite event. Seven of them were won by women. The German race was won by a woman. The, the Soviet race was won by a, by a woman. Some of the most feared backyard runners are women, like Fort. And women, you really, the only time that they're not a threat to win is if these people who insist on having a women's division. And uh, because other than that, women actually win disproportionate to their representation in the number of runners. Yeah, what for? We, we may have to have a men's division someday. <laughs> to save the men. <laughs> So I, I have a question. So, you know, uh, you've put on a number of races. There's a number of different styles of races. Your most famous ones are, are the Barkley and, and Biggs Backyard, probably. Uh, do you have any ideas for any new races bouncing around in your head? So we have a, a new event. It's actually, this will be the second time we've run it that I'm really excited about. It's, it's another one that I wish I was younger so that I could play. Uh, the Vol State ends at Castle Rock, Georgia, and we everybody goes up there, parks their car, we load them on tour buses, and drive them to Missouri for the start. It takes a whole day to do the trip, and then the next day they start back. <clears throat> they park their cars and have ten days to get back. This one is the same basic concept, except you don't know where it starts. So everyone drives up and they park their cars in a field. We load them on tour buses, drive them all day, somewhere between 320 and 370 miles away, put them out on the side of the road, and they have 10 days to get back. Oh, my God. And so, they don't know where the race starts, and you know they don't even know what direction it is until the bus pulls out. And they don't know where it starts until they get dumped beside the road, and then we give them a map. Well, we actually put them in a motel and start them in the morning. So when they get to the motel, they get the map of the course and they can start planning their, planning their race. So uh, where is that line between having a race and just kidnapping people? (laughs) (laughs) The only difference is whether they're willing or not. Oh, that is, that's an excellent point. Um, Definitely want to uh, thank you for joining us today where we've had a fantastic conversation. I uh, would like to close with what I think is the most important question that we could pose to you. So I have to set this up for just a moment. So we're going to take you back to one of those days uh, between Burns and Bend and it is sweltering hot and you're running, you're out of supplies and you walk up, you've got this one last refuge. There's a, 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 a small gas station in the middle of nowhere. And you walk in and you have one drink choice and it's Mr. Pibb. What do you do? Oh, I, I drink it in a moment. Not every <laughs> soda can make it through medical school. <laughs> so, so you're okay with Mr. Pibb over Dr. Pepper? I am, I am just fine with Mr. Pibb. <laughs> well, very good. So... Uh, <laughs> We're not going to find you on the side of the road with a full pib can. Just go, no! <laughs> <laughs> no, and the hotter it gets, the more flexible I am about what, I, what exactly I'll drink. One of the greatest meals of the entire Transcon came between Burns and Banders' uh, brothers. You know, sister, Sisters is the famous one, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the Gatlinburg in Oregon. But Brothers was just nothing in the middle of the desert, but I'd been going for several days and was looking forward to getting a meal because they do have a restaurant there. We called ahead, and the uh, 
when we were the day we were going to come by there. And they said, no, someone had stopped to eat yesterday, so they had to drive to Ben to get more food. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> only if you, only in Eastern Oregon, right? right? Yeah. And so I go from, from looking forward to having an actual cooked meal to really not having anything for lunch. And someone came by who had brought some chicken livers and butter. And we sat down in the, in the parking lot of, of this little park-like place next to next to Brothers. I'm, I'm not sure what it was, but there was a parking spot. And he fried those chicken livers and butter right there on the side of the road. That was so good. <laughs> well, that's great. Now, are you already a fan of chicken livers? Because that would be the moment where I would define uh, how far am I willing to go when I'm starving because I would pass on those in a heartbeat. I, I eat pretty much anything, but I do, I do like chicken livers. And uh, those were better than ever. I, trust me, there are conditions where that you will eat anything. Uh, yeah, I can, uh, I can attest to that. When you've been out, <laughs> pushing things and you haven't eaten in a while, uh, your bar of what you're willing to eat goes down pretty quickly. <laughs> My longest stretch without getting, being able to get a meal on the transcon was three days. What were you doing in those three days? Was that like power bars and, and popcorn? I was getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> it just never worked out where the, that I was somewhere when that there was that you could get food when they were open to get food. There, there's some big empty spaces in this country. That that was the third day at the towards the end of the day. I was really thinking, you know, I'm I'm really struggling today. Maybe I can't make this. But then I got to my room and looked, and there was a delivery place, and I ordered a family size calzone. And the first bite of the calzone, I realized what had been wrong with. Oh yeah! <laughs> oh. For three days, you get wheat. A calzone yeah. that that's gonna hit the spot. Mm. Oh, it was it was the best calzone ever made. Uh, well, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. I really enjoyed going through a number of these stories, and I know you're hesitant to say it, but you definitely are. Uh, you qualify as an old crazy runner. Yeah, you do. Well, I still say I'm the only here. <laughs> yeah, we'll take that too as an answer. Appreciate y'all having me on. Lazarus fucking leg joined us on the OCR podcast. That was definitely someone on our bucket list to get. And man, that guy's got some stories. He certainly did not disappoint. We barely scratched the surface of the things that he has to tell us. If you haven't had a chance to watch either of the um, documentaries that are out there, if you haven't read any of the articles or the write-ups, uh, each of these just highlight one more little thing that he's done, and he has done a lot. Yeah, one of the Barkley Marathon documentaries, isn't it called uh, The Race That Eats Its Young or something like that? <laughs> I think that's the name of one of the documentaries or, or YouTube uh, little snippets on the race because it is one crazy race. And the thing that struck me most about him and kind of remind me a little bit about uh, our interview with Ricky Gates on a previous episode is that he's really just looking for the fun in running. He is looking for the fun in running um, purely from a sadomasochist point of view. There's a little sadomasochism, but is you can see his mind works like, hey, how can I make this really interesting versus uh, just another marathon road race? Absolutely. And the other thing that I um, took away from the things that have come out, not necessarily in our conversation, but things that you've said to others is the importance of pushing people to achieve what they didn't think they could. And every time somebody finishes one of his races, he evaluates why, and then he makes it just a little bit more challenging so that the next person has to step it up again. Yeah, when he was talking about Big's Backyard and that guy in Belgium that ran for 75 hours. 75 hours. 75 hours. I don't think anybody would have thought that they could run for 75 hours. And that's really what you're talking about. If you set up a, a race or a system or a situation, uh, people will do things that they didn't think they can do. And, you know, that's what, that's why we have people like this on the podcast, because in order to really reach our long-term goals, like I want to make it to hundred, we mentioned, we want to be running in our nineties. 
we just got to keep challenging ourselves. We, we do. And he made a comment that I wrote down um, when he was talking about the biggest challenges for his transcontinental run, which, by the way, four months oh, in geez. his 60s. Yeah, 27 miles a day. It was the need to just physically keep going. Yep. And when your body says, I'm done, and the mind says, no, you're not. And then the body's like, okay, oh, I guess I'm not done. And you take that one more step. Yeah. And then he kind of brought that back around with Biggs. When he talked about, you know, the true competitors, find a way back to the starting line. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Old Crazy Runners. Take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends how much you love listening in. And be sure to go by Strava and join the Old Crazy Runners Podcast Run Club because that's where all us old crazies hang out and that's where we encourage each other to keep getting out there, keep putting in the miles, Keep being old crazy runners.